All right, well, uh, thanks everybody, everybody for joining. Uh, today, we're here to talk about choosing the correct sensor for nutrient monitoring. Uh, since there are several different types of sensors uh, for measuring nutrients, there's often confusion about which sensor to use for the application. So in this webinar, we're going to outline exactly when and where you should use each type of sensor and make the decision process a little bit easier for you. All right. So these are the topics we'll be talking about today. Uh, we'll start off with a small introduction to nutrient monitoring. Uh, then we'll get into our sensor types. Uh, first, we have ammonium, where we will talk about ISC sensors and wet chemistry analyzers. Then nitrate, where we have ISC sensors and UV sensors. And then finally, phosphorus monitoring, in which we will talk about the difference between measuring orthophosphate and total phosphorus. And then throughout the, course of, uh, throughout the course of this presentation, I'm going to clear up some FAQs or you know, frequently asked questions that we get uh, as a manufacturer about nutrient sensors. So keep an eye out for those throughout the uh, presentation. So let's get into the first part, uh, the introduction to mon nutrient monitoring in wastewater. Okay, so what exactly is nutrient monitoring and what does it mean in wastewater? Well, as a general definition, nutrient monitoring is the quantification of nutrients within various water systems that may cause harm to humans or the environment. So these nutrients are not only relevant in the wastewater world, uh, but they're also relevant in the other water systems like lakes, rivers, uh, coastal water, and drinking water sources. The nutrients that we are worried about, well, of course, it's nitrogen and phosphorus, the ones that we talk about all the time. These are the nutrients that concentrate in our waterways and, and have the potential to cause the most damage. In wastewater, we can quantify nutrients with several types of tools or sensors, such as online sensors and analyzers, like we will talk about today. Uh, but we can also use things like handheld sensor systems, uh, the good old fashioned uh, grab sample in lab with lab equipment, and then things like samplers that we can take composite samplers you know, over the course of 24 hours, or, sampler, or samples when a specific event occurs, such as like a rainfall event. So why do we need to monitor nutrients? Well, excess nutrients cause eutrophication, which is basically a state in which the water is maxed out in nutrients, giving aquatic algae the ability to grow uncontrollably. These algal blooms can be harmful to both humans and the environment, hence the name harmful algal blooms or HABs. They can be toxic to aquatic animals, our pets, or even to us humans. The side effects of HABs can be dangerous too. They can create oxygen dead zones uh, in the body of water that they are in, in turn, uh, and in turn cause large scale fish kills. If you want to learn more about this topic, YSI has a fantastic webpage dedicated to HABs, so please check it out, the address here. And I believe we will have uh, Shannon drop the uh, comment or drop the uh, address in the, uh, uh, in the chat so you guys can click on it there. Also, the reason that we are concerned about nitrogen and phosphorus specifically is that these are limiting nutrients, meaning that if phosphorus is present in higher quantities in freshwater, then algae can grow uncontrollably. And in the case of a saltwater system, such as estuaries or coastal waters, we're worried about nitrogen being the limited nutrient in which algae can grow uncontrollably there. So nutrient pollution was really getting really bad leading up to the Clean Water Act of 1972, which finally said that we needed to reduce the amount of pollution like nutrients that we are putting into the environment and just in general, improve the health of our water systems in the US. So if you wanna learn more about how the Clean Water Act came around, uh, YSI in the, uh, in the process of, or in lieu of the CWA uh, 50th anniversary, came out with a blog earlier this year, uh, citing exactly why the Clean Water Act came around. So again, Shannon should drop another link in the, uh, in the chat and you should check that out. All right, so let's really quickly talk about how nitrogen and phosphorus are removed from wastewater. Nitrogen actually enters wastewater from several sources, such as urine, organic nitrogen, which could be you know, things like fecal waste or anything decomposing. And then of course, nitrogen-rich fertilizers. Now nitrogen occurs in wastewater in several forms, with the two most important forms being ammonium and nitrate. 
The difficult thing is that in order to remove nitrogen completely from water, we need to uh, we need to uh, in turn turn any existing nitrogen into nitrogen gas, which then escapes from the water into the atmosphere. To the, to do that, we need to use a process called biological nutrient removal, or BNR. And this is an activated sludge process that turns ammonium into nitrite, as you can see in the picture right here, ammonium into nitrite, and then nitrite into nitrate. And then finally, we need a, another process that turns nitrate into nitrogen gas, removing it completely from the wastewater. Now for phosphorus removal, phosphorus gets into wastewater through things like fertilizers, manufactured products, human and animal waste, and much more. Phosphorus removal is a little bit different than nutrient or nitrogen removal. It can be removed chemically, which requires dosing uh, a coagulant like alum or ferric, which then binds to the dissolved phosphorus and then is uh, and then it's removed from the wastewater using our clarifiers. You know, get gravity uh, settling or gravity um, gravity removal of the settled solids, or you can remove it biologically, which is actually done using anaerobic microorganisms to uptake phosphorus into their cells, which is then also removed through our clarifiers. By the way, if, uh, if you want to learn anything more about phosphorus in wastewater, uh, please download our amazing Phosphorus in Wastewater ebook, which you can see on the right over here, uh, that we, re we, released, we released last year. Um, so you can find it at the link at the bottom. Uh, but this is one of the nicest looking and easiest, easiest to digest uh, pieces of content that we've ever created as a team. So please check that out. It's really good. All right, so under our first FAQ of the day. So why do sensor specifications for ammonium list the parameter as both NH4-N, as you can see in these first two up here, NH4-N and NH4? So if you take a look at any spec, you'll notice that each parameter will have two measuring options. You'll have an NH4-N option and then a NH4 option, one that doesn't have a dash N. So the question is, do you want to measure the concentration of the entire NH4 molecule? Or do you only want to know what the concentration of the nitrogen molecule within that is, or the nitrogen atom within that? This is where the dash N comes in. Typically, we only want to know the concentration of the amount of nitrogen in the water. Thinking about you know, when we are trying to remove uh, nitrogen from our water, we want our total nitrogen to come down, meaning we don't really care about these hydrogen molecules. So whenever, we're look, or whenever we are uh, setting up our sensors, we always want to make sure that we have that dash N in the measurement. And this goes the same for with nitrate. So we are looking uh, at a NO3 dash N and then an NO3. So we don't necessarily care about the, uh, about the concentration of these oxygen molecules. So instead, we'll want to use the NO3 dash N in which we get the concentration of just the nitrogen. So for future reference, that is, uh, that is why the dash N exists in our, in our specs. All right, now I'm for part two. We're going to get into our first parameter, ammonium. Okay, so for each sensor type, I will explain the technology, compare the installation and maintenance requirements for each, and then compare the best applications for each type of sensor. So where should you use it or where shouldn't you use it? So starting off with ion selective electrode sensors or ISEs. Um, with ISEs, we have several electrodes that make the measurement happen. The first one is the measuring electrode. This electrode has a membrane that is designed to allow only ammonium ions through that membrane. And it's providing an electrical signal based on how much ammonium is actually in the electrode or has passed into the electrode. Next, we have the reference electrode, which is basically only supposed to output a constant and stable millivolt signal. And the reason that is, is because the, with the changing ammonium uh, concentrations, that ammonium, that measuring electrode millivolt is gonna go up and down, but we don't really know how far up and down unless we have that reference electrode. And then finally, you see here, we have compensating electrodes for potassium and chloride. Both of these ions are positive interferences on ammonium or nitrate. If we can measure them in real time, then we can actually automatically compensate for them. Meaning if, that, if we have a ammonium uh, 
an ammonium measurement or a, an amount of ammonium in the water, potassium is going to go overcompensate for that because it looks like ammonium. If we measure it in real time, we can actually correct for that in real time. So with the measuring electrode producing a millivolt value uh, based on the ammonium concentration and a reference electrode producing a constant millivolt value, we can take the difference of those two values and put it into the Nernst equation, which we see here, uh, which is uh, which is relates the electric chemical potential of the two ions. This creates a value that can be calibrated to create a slope based on the concentration of the ammonia in the water. And this is exactly what happens with the nitrate measurement at nitrate measurement as well. Now, wet chemistry is a little bit different. Wet chemistry analysis basically is an automated lab analysis. So just think of everything that you need to do to do a ammonium grab sample. And these wet chemistry uh, analyzers do this automatically and then runs 24 seven to get automatic or to get continuous readings. With ammonium wet chemistry, we are following the indophenyl blue method. In this method, we are filtering out any solids since we are only interested in dissolving ammonium in the sample. The sample is filtered and then combined with reagents and mixed before being pushed to the photometer. And the photometer measures the absorbance of the water, which is then converted to a milligrams per liter value of ammonium. And then the sample is pushed finally to the drain. And in a few minutes, the whole cycle starts over again. Okay, so now when comparing the two technologies, it is important to discuss the amount of effort and investment each technology requires. On the left side of this table, I have several installation and maintenance items to consider, uh, including cleaning frequency, uh, calibration frequency, consumable replacements, um, space requirements, and then of course cost. And then in the uh, on the top of the column, we have our two uh, ammonium measurement technologies that we have. So looking at the cleaning frequencies of both of these, the ISC sensor should be cleaned about bi-weekly if you don't have any like air cleaning on it. Um, so bi-weekly is usually a good standard for how often you should clean it. For the wet chemistry analyzer a cleaning frequency, the uh, ours YSI actually does have an automatic cleaning process that cleans out the inside of the tubing automatically every single day or actually how long, however long you want. And then the filter actually does need to be uh, actually does need to be uh, cleaned biweekly as well. So actually they have very similar cleaning frequencies um, between the IAC sensor and the wet chemistry analyzer. As for calibration frequency, the IAC sensor should be calibrated about monthly and that is usually done with a, uh, with a comparison grab sample. And the reason that it needs to be calibrated monthly is because the electrodes that are used within the IAC sensor, those have a shelf life or they have a, uh, they have a shelf life, with, which means that they are aging as they, uh, as they are in the process. And basically, the reason that is is because there's electrolyte solution in that, um, uh, in that electrode, and then it's slowly being used up throughout the life of the electrode. So to compensate for that drift, we need to calibrate monthly. For the wet chemistry analyzer, uh, the YSI ELISA, at least an hour uh, for hours, uh, it is automatic daily calibration. So we can actually set, a, set it up to do automatic one point or two point calibrations. Um, and we can actually have that either done every day or multiple times a day or once a week, whatever you would like. But that gives a big advantage to the wet chemistry analyzer being able to have automatic calibrations. And that's why I have it highlighted there. Consumable replacements. Now electrodes, the electrodes for the ISC sensors need to be replaced about every 12 to 24 months. And again, that's just because they age, they do need to be replaced because that, those, uh, that electrolyte solution is gonna run out. And with the YSI uh, variant amylate or nitrolate, that's gonna occur about uh, every 12 to 24 months. As for the wet chemistry analyzer, there's a little bit more involved that you would have to replace at a routine interval. And that would be the reagents, which would be about every, about every three months um, for ammonium. Uh, the MPV, which is actually our multi-port mixing valve, this is kind of in place of like what tubing would be replaced on some other uh, on other manufacturer on other uh, analyzers. 
and that needs to be replaced about every six to 12 months. And then the filter on the, uh, on the ammonium analyzer needs to be replaced about every 12 to 24 months. So I'm gonna give the edge to the ISE sensor on that one, in being that you don't really have to replace as many things as often. And then finally, the last two things we have here are space requirements. The ISE sensor is a normal size sensor, um, about you know a foot and a half long, um, and it can be used with IQ SensorNet and deployed directly into the process. So it's going to be a lot. E it's going to be a very easy sensor to work with, um, in comparison to the wet chemistry analyzer, which is a big cabinet analyzer. And that's going to be you're you're going to have to have extra space on a railing. You're going to have to still have an in situ filter um, into the process. Um, so I would give the edge to the ISC sensor for space requirements. And we all know that space in a wastewater treatment plant is not always the easiest to find. Uh, and then finally, we have cost. Um, obviously, a big factor um, that we you know either we, that we need to talk about. Um, the ISC sensor is a uh, a more affordable option um, in comparison to the wet chemistry analyzer. So if you're going to, especially if you're gonna have multiple, it's gonna be a lot easier to have multiple ISE sensors for those reasons in comparison to multiple wet chemistry analyzers. All right. All right, next we're gonna get into the application comparisons, starting with the ISEs. And, I'll show, and this is where I'll show you where and when the sensor should or should not be used. So the first spot that I think is a great application is at the influent of your activated sludge basins, or at least at the beginning of your aerobic basins. At this location, we're gonna get higher ammonium values, you know, between 20 to 50 milligrams per liter. Um, and the ISC sensor can track very, very well. And operators can get a great idea of the ammonium loading coming into their basins, which can be very useful for their process in general. Next is going to be in the middle of your aerobic train, more specifically where ammonium is in the range of one to five milligrams per liter. At this location, you can still get great performance out of your ISE sensors and get very useful data and see daily fluctuations at that location. Also, this is actually my preferred spot to introduce some ammonia-based aeration control in order to dial back the amount of aeration being, uh, being used. And then finally, the two locations where I really wouldn't uh, be very careful about using an IAC ammonium sensor is at the end of your aeration, aeration train and at your effluent, more specifically where ammonium is gonna be consistently below one milligram per liter. If your ISC sensor is continually reading near zero, then you are likely going to have difficulties with an IAC sensor. And I'll explain why on the next slide. Okay. So ISCs have a reputation for not measuring well at low levels, and this goes with any manufacturer of ISC sensors. It is just a, a, a way of, or a, a, just something about that technology um, that, that causes this. So if an ISC is in a location where it's continually reading near 0.0, .0 milligrams per liter, then occasional spikes in ammonium will not be detected or will have a tough time being detected. If you're measuring near zero, which means you're likely calibrating to zero, and that's really going to mess up. Uh, that's really going to mess up the slope that you're trying to create with your calibration. So if a spike in ammonium does come through, it may not recognize that spike in ammonium. For the same reason, the calibration will also drift sooner. Also, electrodes will need to be replaced more often. In a low concentration environment, the electrolyte solution in these electrodes is being used up quicker and basically aging the electrode faster than usual. And finally, interferences will be much more prevalent at these low concentrations. So if you take a look at the graph on the right, these, line, these three lines show the influence potassium has on the ammonium measurement. In, in uh, ammonium measurements that are you know, above 10, 100, or I mean, really just above five, you, uh, 50 milligrams per liter of potassium, 10 milligrams per liter of potassium are not gonna make a big difference. Only once you get down below one milligram per liter of ammonium, these uh, 10 and 50 milligrams per liter of potassium make a huge difference. Like even makes it go from 0.1 to one milligram per liter of ammonium, or even up to like, you know, almost a five milligrams per liter of a difference. So with these low concentrations, you also get a bigger effect of interferences. Now for the ammonium wet chemistry analyzer, 
These analyzers are best used pretty much where the ISE sensors cannot be used. So in low concentration, low concentration areas, such as the end of an aeration train or at the effluent. These analyzers are accurate at all levels due to the daily automatic calibrations and the photometric measurement. This allows the analyzer to create to be accurate down all the way down to 0.02 milligrams per liter of ammonium. Now, how about when you're trying to control aeration with your ammonium measurement? Well, with ammonia-based aeration control, the online measurement is used to control blowers to maintain a preferred ammonium set point. And, is, and the general goal of this is to save energy by reducing over aeration. In my opinion, the ammonium ISE is the better choice because it has an immediate response time where the ammonium wet chemistry can only provide a new value, value about every 10 minutes. So you're not gonna have a, an immediate response to a peak in ammonium. And also this does not allow for very fine control of the blowers. The downside, of course, is that the ammonium ISC still should not be deployed at a location consistently below one milligram per liter of ammonium. So feedback control of blowers is gonna be difficult if you use an ISC sensor. The other downside of the ammonium wet chemistry analyzer is that uh, with ammonia-based race control is that it's usually beneficial to have several ammonium measurements per train. So maybe an incoming load and then a, uh, a controlling like in the middle, uh, in the middle of the basins, and then, of course, it would be nice to have one at the end of the train to just ensure that you are near zero going out. Of course, that could be an ammonium uh, analyzer. Uh, but when having multiple ISE sensors, that is going to be a lot more manageable to locate and maintain several ISE sensors rather than locating and maintaining several wet chemistry analyzers. So which should you choose for your ammonium measurement? Well. The maintenance overall is pretty comparable, but it is different. And it depends ultimately on what you and your team is more comfortable with. Are they more comfortable with working with analyzers, uh, you know, replacing reagents, cleaning filters, or are they, are they a little bit more familiar with working with an IAC sensor? Um, so it really just depends on what your team is more comfortable with in that situation. IAC sensors require much less space and lower costs. So that could be a factor. Um, if you're looking to, again, use multiple, it might be a better idea to use, an I, to use ISEs um, uh, in that situation. If controlling aeration, use the ISE sensor unless the concentration stays at low values. And I pretty much went, all, went over all the reasons on the last slide. And then finally, wet chemistry ammonium should pretty much be used when the sample concentration is below 1.0 milligrams per liter of ammonium. And based on all the, the, inst, uh, the installation requirements, the maintenance requirements, um, and the accuracy of, above 1.0 milligrams per liter, especially with YSI's ISE sensor, um, I would always recommend using an ISE unless you're actually at that really low level in which you definitely would need a wet chemistry ammonium uh, measurement. So at the effluent, for example. Okay, now on to our second FAQ question of the day. What is the difference between ammonium NH4 and ammonium NH3? Well, actually they are the same molecule and the extra H or the extra hydrogen or H plus molecule on the ammonium is entirely dependent on the pH of the solution. So taking a look at this graph, uh, we can see the relationship between pH and the ammonium species. So on the bottom, we have our pH from 0 to 14. And we on the left side, we have like uh, these two lines, which demonstrate like how much of the, um, how much of this molecule is in the ammonium form, which is how much is in the, P, or, uh, the ammonia form. So Typical wastewater is in the, the range of like 7.5 to 8 pH, or maybe a little bit above 8, just a, a tad. At that pH, if you go up to where, um, if you go up to the uh, NH4 line, nearly 100% of the ammonium is in the ammonium form, or the ammonia or ammonium is in the ammonium form. And that is why when we're measuring with online sensors in wastewater, they're actually usually measuring ammonium uh, instead of ammonia. Now, if the pH was higher than 9.5, the actual, the 50-50 equilibrium is around 9.26. So if you're ever in the pH above, you know, 9.5, 10, 11 range, you can see that um, 
nearly 100% of the of this uh, of these molecules are actually going to be in the ammonia form. So that's the difference between the two and why we are measuring ammonium more often than ammonia. All right, now into our section, uh, the next section, nitrate sensors. But first, let's get to our third FAQ question of the day. Um, what is the difference between nitrate and nitrite? So NO3 versus NO2. So nitrite is the intermediate form between ammonium and nitrate in the nitrification process. Nitrifying bacteria are the ones that are converting uh, uh, NH4 ammonium to nitrite. And then another uh, nitrifying bacteria completes this process to oxidize nitrite into nitrate. So nitrate or nitrite, NO2, is more, uh, is more dangerous to the environment because it does have more toxicity. Um, but there is very few instances where nitrite can actually build up in wastewater or the environment. Um, it is not a very stable molecule because it'll either want to go to, uh, it'll either, it'll probably mostly want to uh, turn into nitrate more often than not. So more often, unless you are doing a special like Animox system where you're like turning, going from nitrite directly into uh, nitrogen gas, uh, measuring nitrite is really only to ensure that it stays near zero. Um, and nitrate is the, usually the more important parameter to measure since it signifies the end of the nitrification process. Okay, so we already talked about our ISE sensors and everything that I said for ammonium is also relevant for the nitrate, nitrate, or sorry, nitrate ISE. So for nitrate, we, have, we are comparing the nitrate ISE versus the nitrate UV sensor. Um, so looking at the UV vis technology for nitrate, um, UV or UV vis sensors. Um, essentially, what these are are they have a lamp that emits a light, and the light passes through this me uh, the measuring gap, which is shown on the sensor here. The measuring gap is open to the uh, flow of the water, so this entire sensor is actually sitting in the water, and there's constant sample flowing through this measuring gap. And this is what the sample is. So we're shining a light from one side. We have a detector on the other side, picking up how much light has actually transmitted through. And uh, with that, we can get our percent transmittance of, uh, of light. And then of course, the amount of uh, light absorbed by the sample. And that is basically all this technology is, um, or the, the basis for how this technology works. Now with the YSI UV Viz sensor, this lamp uses 256 different wavelengths of light to determine each measurement. And it determines the absorbance at each, each of these wavelengths. This creates a footprint like we see on the top right here. And using an application specific algorithm, the sensor determines a milligram per liter value of nitrate based on each of those 256 measurements. So UV Viz technology has a lot of variations between the different manufacturers and the different applications that they are used in. So for example, <clears throat> the number of wavelengths measured. Uh, in general, the more wavelengths that we can measure, uh, the, little, the more accurate that we possibly can be. So whereas uh, we have a, uh, our sensors can measure up to 256 different wavelengths to get a concentration of COD, uh, BOD, um, or at least core, or COD, uh, nitrate, nitrite, TSS. Um, with our uh, uh, other manufacturers or actually other uh, versions of our sensor, we may only use like three to five wavelengths in order to, uh, in order to get the measurements. The parameters available, um, Y size uh, UV sensors can measure nitrate, nitrite, uh, COD, BOD, TOC, um, UVT254, and, uh, and TSS. And we can actually measure up to five on a single, uh, on a single sensor. Whereas uh, we have several different versions of our sensor where we might only have nitrate or we might only have UVT254, um, but we have all these different options available um, for parameters with this type of technology. Uh, then we have the gap size. So this is the space between the detector and the light source. And basically what this, uh, why these are different is depends on the clarity of the water and the amount of solids in the water. The wider the gap, 
the, uh, the cleaner the water is. So if you think of a drinking water gap or a drinking water sensor, um, which uh, for a UV measurement, that's gonna be a 10 centimeter gap because that uh, water is so clear that that light can actually travel 10 centimeters. Where compared to a UV sensor for uh, activated sludge in wastewater, we only have a one millimeter gap. And that's, a, that's because there's so many solids in the water that it can't penetrate all the way through. So that's a really big difference in your uh, determining your application, the type of sensor that you use. Uh, program calibrations. Um, our UV sensors are actually designed to, are pre-programmed for three different um, locations. The inlet, so anything before activated sludge, uh, activated sludge itself, and then the outlet, so anything after your secondary clarifiers. Um, so when installing this, you wanna make sure that you set your sensor to the correct location. And then finally, the cleaning technology. Different manufacturers have different automatic cleaning technologies that are included with a UV sensor. Um, for example, uh, ours has something called ultrasonic cleaning, uh, in which the, uh, the face of the sensor actually vibrates and shakes off any biological uh, solids that are trying to build up on that sensor. Um, whereas other manufacturers might have like a, a wiper system, then um, we can actually connect a air cleaning system to this as well. So lots of options for automatic, for cleaning technologies. All right, so let's uh, take a look at the installation and maintenance comparison between the nitrate ISC sensor and the UV-Viz nitrate sensor. First, looking at cleaning frequency, the ISC sensor uh, stays the same where it's gonna be measured by, or it's gonna be cleaned usually about uh, bi-weekly. Um, as for the UV-Viz sensor, um, because of that UV-Viz, or I'm sorry, because of that ultrasonic uh, cleaning system, you can actually back that, uh, met that manual cleaning frequency by about another two weeks. And usually monthly is like the sweet spot for these UV sensors. So only every month you, have to, you would have to pull that out and clean those measuring windows. How about clean calibration frequency? Again, the ISC sensor is still gonna be monthly. Those electrodes are aging. Um, the UV-Viz sensor is actually as an ad-needed basis. There's actually no, um, there's actually no requirement to, uh, uh, to routinely calibrate these sensors because they don't have any aging components. They have an, uh, what they do have is that they have a light source and that light source is actually automatically accounting for drift with a reference path in, a, uh, in the measuring path. So the UV-Viz sensor actually takes care of uh, itself takes care of any drifting that could occur. So really a one-time uh, calibration upon uh, installation is really what you should only need, but you can make adjustments uh, down the road if you need, but there's no routine calibration required. All right, how about consumable replacements? Uh, electrodes are still 12 to 24 months for the ISC sensors. With the UV-Viz sensor, the great thing about this sensor is that it is a completely closed system. So there's no wipers that need to be replaced. The ultrasonic cleaning is good for the entire life of the probe. And there's no, nothing, that, again, that needs to be uh, changed for drifting. So there's no sensor caps. There's no electrodes. It doesn't have uh, really the main thing that you just need to do with this sensor is to, uh, is to clean, it, uh, clean it manually, uh, usually monthly, and then just make sure the calibration is dialed in. Next is space requirements. Although the UV sensor is actually a slightly bigger sensor, instead of like a foot and a half, it's actually about like two and a half to three feet long. Um, so although they are, uh, the UV-Viz sensor is slightly larger, it is still pretty much the same. Uh, I would consider it similar to having an ISC sensor. Um, so I just kept that as a wash for both. Uh, but then as for uh, cost of the sensors, um, the ISC sensors are a bit more affordable than the UV-Viz sensor. Um, but that just become, comes with the technology and the amount of parameters uh, that you can measure or the amount of parameters you can get uh, with a single sensor. All right, so how about our application comparison? For the ISEs, there are several locations where nitrate sensors provide valuable information. The first would be at the beginning of the, uh, at the beginning of the pre-anoxic zone to show if you have a, if you have nitrate available to denitrify from your internal mixed liquor or from your primary, primary effluent. You need to have, um, 
two things that you need in your anoxic zone for denitrification to occur is, of course, carbon, and then, of course, nitrate. Um, and then, of course, a lack of oxygen, which is the other thing. Um, the second location, um, I would say that a nitrate measurement is really important, really great with an ISE, will be at the beginning of the second anoxic zone, if you have one. At this location, you should have nitrate from the previous aerobic zone, uh, so you can ensure that you have nitrate available to denitrify. Uh, the third spot I've seen operators uh, measure nitrate is in their internal mixed liquor recirculation, um, which, go, which in turn goes back to their pre-anoxic zone. Uh, basically, uh, at this location, they're just trying to measure exactly how much nitri or nitrate they're taking back to that anoxic zone. Um, and finally, as long as your concentrations are not too low, you can use a nitrate ISE to measure at your effluent with an ISE sensor. Um, usually nitrate isn't that low in the effluent of secondary treatment plants, um, but in case there is, that, uh, that might not be a good idea to use it here. Again, now the issue is there are some applications where the ISE sensors may be measuring very low. So if instead you had the uh, instance where these ISEs were at the back end of those anoxic zones, Again, in the anoxic zones, we're trying to get rid of nitrate. So that should be really, really low at the end of those zones. You may have issues with performance of the sensor due to the low nitrogen or the low nitrate concentrations below one milligram per liter. Um, in this sensor, or sorry, in this situation, it may be better to have a UV sensor. So UV sensors for nitrate measure very well, even at low measuring ranges. So you can use a UV nitrate sensor, uh, a UV nitrate sensor wherever you could an ISE sensor in most in most wastewater applications. One particular application that would be better uh, that would be better for UV uh, a UV sensor over an ISE might be if you're trying to dose carbon in your second anoxic zone. Um, if you need to supplement carbon, uh, the, the nitrate measurement can actually maintain a very low nitrate set point. Um, let's see. Okay, so 
the uh, in a if, if you're dosing carbon in a second in an oxic in oxic zone, you often don't want to dose as much carbon as possible, or you want to regulate the amount of carbon you're dosing. So you basically only want to dose as much as long as you have nitrate available. So in that case, it might be better to use a UV nitrate because you can use a set point that's below that's very low um, to con to help control that carbon dosing. Okay, so my recommendations for when measuring nitrate are to choose the UV vis nitrate sensor if you want to lose if you want to less uh, you want less overall maintenance. These sensors do not require as much cleaning, uh, calibration, or consumables as the ISC sensor. Um, also, if you're measuring below one milligram per liter of nitrate, then you definitely got to get the IS the UV sensor. Third, if you're controlling carbon dosing, I would recommend the UV sensor. And then finally, something we haven't talked about much is the availability of other measurements on these sensors. If you're also interested in measuring nitrate, COD, BOD, TOC, UVT, or TSS, you can measure most of these with the same sensor thanks to that UV technology. Finally, you should use the nitrate IS, or I'm sorry, you should use the nitrate ISC sensor if you have a lower budget. Um, obviously, they're a little bit more affordable and you can you know, use a lot, or you can uh, get a lot more of those nitrate measurements for a, you know, a similar price. Um, or if you want to, uh, or if you also want to measure ammonium. So with the Varian, uh, you can actually measure both ammonium and nitrate on the same sensor. And as we know, in the activated sludge process, the capability of being able to measure both on the same sensor can be extremely valuable. Okay, so that brings us to our only poll question of the day, uh, and I will turn it over to Shannon, so hopefully she can hear me. Um, I can. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> All right, we have a poll for you guys. Um, we'd like to know which nutrient sensors and analyzers you use at your facility, and you can select more than one here. So I'll give you a few seconds to vote. Just a few more seconds here. It looks like we've got about 40% who have voted. Yep, so if you could read the or read the results, um, that would Just be awesome. Just a moment. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and close it. Hopefully everybody's got their responses in. And the results, so it looks like 43% um, ammonium ISE sensors, 20% for ammonium wet chemistry analyzers, 28% for nitrate ISE sensors, 29% nitrate UV sensors, and 20% orthophosphate wet, wet chemistry analyzers. Wow. Um, yeah, that was actually a bit more than I expected on the wet chemistry analyzers. Got 20% for ammonium and around 20% for orthophosphate. Yeah, nice. All right, cool. Thanks, Shannon. All right, <clears throat> now for our final section, uh, we're gonna talk about the phosphorus measurement or in which we can measure uh, orthophosphate or total phosphorus. And that brings us to our final FAQ of the presentation. What is the difference between orthophosphate, PO4, and total phosphorus, TP? Well, in wastewater, phosphorus can be present in several forms. First, we have soluble reactive phosphorus. This is actually what orthophosphate measurement means. So the soluble, uh, which is the phosphorus that is actually dissolved in the water. This is our, or this is our orthophosphate measurement in which we measure within orthophosphate cabinet. The other forms of phosphorus are soluble non-reactive phosphorus, which is actually a very small amount and usually negligible. So we don't actually pay attention to that as much. Uh, then we have our colloidal uh, phosphorus, which is the phosphorus that is kind of in the middle stage of where 
it's not quite dissolved, but it's not quite particulate. Or particulate. Um, and then finally, we have our particulate phosphorus. So, uh, which is basically anything that is in a solid form, you know, any, any phosphorus molecule that is bound to a solid particle. And all of these are all of these different forms actually add up to your total phosphorus measurement. So when you are have your MPDES limits, they're actually measuring. Uh, they're actually wanting to ensure that your total phosphorus is below a certain limit. And what majority of the time that we're trying or that we're trying to measure, a majority of the analyzers out there are actually ortho P. So what's dissolved in the water. So when removing phosphorus from wastewater, we're actually trying to turn as much of this orthophosphate into total into uh, into particulate phosphorus, which we can then remove from our clarifiers. So literally, or usually, um, this is, the solid phosphorus is actually usually being removed from the process before it even leaves the plant. Okay. So just to be clear, uh, there is no sensor technology yet that can measure uh, any form of phosphorus. So when we're here talking about phosphorus um, between orthophosphate and total phosphorus, we're actually comparing two types of wet chemistry analyzers. So, ortho so for orthophosphate, YSI analyzers use the yellow method, otherwise known as the vanadate-molybdate method. The process is actually very similar to the ammonium measurement in which we want to filter the solids out because again, we only want to measure what is actually dissolved in the water. The sample is then mixed with reagents and pushed to the photometer uh, where an absorbance measure is taken and then it's turned into a milligrams per liter value of orthophosphate. There we go. So it is very, uh, and then of course it's sent to drain um, in which it's usually in wastewater, that drain just runs back into the uh, process. So it's a very simple analyzer uh, design and is proven in many different applications by many different uh, manufacturers to uh, work well and also with relatively little maintenance. As for the total phosphorus analyzer, the process is a little different. Since we are trying to measure all of the phosphorus in a sample, including that solid phosphorus, we need to replace that filter step with a digestion step and to turn all of that solid phosphorus into orthophosphate and then take the measurement. So it basically occurs just the same um, in which we digest the sample, all of that solid turns into a, uh, a dissolved, uh, dissolved orthophosphate, we mix it with reagents, we put it through a photometer, and then we get a total phosphorus measurement. Now, the key here is that sample digestion is actually very difficult to put into a wet chemistry analyzer, uh, into a wet chemistry analyzer design. It requires special equipment to handle the acids or the heat that is used for the digestion process. Um, because you need some type of like chemical in order to, uh, in order to bring out to, uh, basically to break down the solids and separate the solid from the phosphorus from those solids. Um, it also requires special reagents, of course, to complete the digestion process, um, which is usually a persulfate oxidation or it's a sulfuric or nitric acid. And along with that comes the additional process time. It's gonna take time for you to mix that uh, acid and for it to come out, of the, come out of the solid into the solution. And all of that makes a total phosphorus test difficult to adapt to a wet chemistry analyzer. For orthophosphate, there are, there are several applications that fit perfectly. Uh, first is controlling chemical dosing to remove phosphorus. It's probably one of the most common applications I see out there um, because uh, a lot of the times uh, it may be tempting to overdose your alomer ferric in order to just ensure that you're meeting your total phosphorus limits. Well, in the case if we have an analyzer measuring orthophosphate after the uh, water leaves your final clarifier, almost all of your sol solid phosphorus should have been removed at this point. Uh, the measurement can be used to directly control your alarm or ferric uh, before the final clarifier, ensuring that you are dosing exactly the right amount to get below your phosphorus limit. The same can be said for enhanced biological phosphorus, phosphorus removal. Uh, an orthophosphate analyzer Will, give, will allow you to measure how well your biological phosphorus removal process is working. 
And this can even be further improved by monitoring uh, your biological process with other IQ SensorNet sensors like you see here. And then finally, orthophosphate is great for monitoring your final effluent. It'll give you a measure of the soluble phosphorus leaving the plant. Um, and, it and it also can give you a good estimate of the total phosphorus leaving your facility. Uh, typically, if you're going to have a, uh, uh, if you're going to have a certain amount of solids that are leaving your plant, um, you can actually get a good ratio of what your total phosphorus is versus your orthophosphate. And then you can calculate what your estimated total phosphorus uh, estimated total phosphorus uh, amount would be. Um, and you can also monitor with the occasional total phosphorus grab sample to just ensure that you're uh, meeting your total or your total phosphorus limits. Now for total phosphorus, the only application that would really be good for a total phosphorus measurement would be a, the final effluent monitoring. Um, and that would be, you know, just to know exactly what that total phosphorus is at, at all times. Um, but of course, that comes at the cost of a much higher price tag and a, a more difficult analyzer to maintain. So which analyzer should you use for your phosphorus monitoring? Uh, you should choose the total P analyzer if you absolutely need total phosphorus measurements at the, at, or, uh, at the final effluent, which is not often the case in my opinion. Um, and as I just mentioned, total phosphorus analyzers do come at a much, much higher price tag because it is a uh, kind of a not often used measurement. And it's really kind of a newer, uh, a newer uh, adaptation to a wet chemistry analyzer. And I really think the same effect can be, uh, the same effect or the, yeah, can be, uh, can be accomplished with a ortho P analyzer and just an occasional, occasional total phosphorus lab measurement. Now you should choose an orthophosphate analyzer in pretty much what I would say every other application. So that would be when controlling chemical dosing, uh, monitoring uh, your eBPR process, and even at the final effluent, um, I believe it's great for, uh, great for this. I still feel that it's great for monitoring your final effluent. And if you really wanted to, you could also, uh, again, supplement with a grab sample of t total phosphorus. All right, so of course, all the sensors shown today are part of YSI's IQ SensorNet, um, which is a plant-wide wastewater monitoring system. Um, all of these sensors are uh, designed specifically for wastewater, so they're designed to be robust and be in um, the algorithms are designed specifically for activated sludge systems or at the final effluent. Um, and the cool thing about our system is that we can uh, take all the sensors in our plant and bring it into a single system. Um, so if you have any information, I'll have a link at the end uh, showing where you can find more about our uh, IQ SensorNet 2020 system. Of course, we also have our IAC sensor for ammonium and nitrate. Uh, these uh, sensors are great for controlling your ammonia-based aeration control system. Um, and just monitoring your activated sludge system in general. Our UV-Vis and spectrophotometric sensors uh, are, are amazing as well. Again, it's a closed loop or a closed enclosed sensor. The body is actually made of titanium. So these are very, very durable. And of course, with the 256 wavelengths that we measure, we get uh, a better correlation to, you know, to be able, be able to measure um, COD, um, TSS, we get a better terabitity correction uh, because we're measuring a lot of in the invisible spectrum. And it also allows us to actually uh, differentiate between nitrate and nitrite. And of course, when I mentioned a lot or the, uh, the orthophosphate uh, cabinet and the uh, ammonium cabinet, wet chemistry analyzers, um, I was speaking of our YSI uh, ELISA platform, which can either measure uh, orthophosphate or it can measure ammonium depending on what you want to measure. But this is a very, very low measuring uh, system that goes all the way down to 0.02 milligrams per liter. Um, and of course, it is a uh, extremely unique system in that it uses a something called a multi-port mixing valve. And that's what I mentioned previously. Um, so this basically um, is the entire uh, uh, kind of the breaking edge technology, um, cutting edge technology that we're working with. Um, so yeah. 
There we go. Uh, so contact us for more information. Um, I believe Shannon is going to send out a care package in the next couple of days showing you exact or giving you more resources and uh, of, about what we have, including some more some other great content that we have. I actually have two uh, blogs that I wrote recently um, that are both on ISEs and then also literally an ISE versus analyzer uh, blog. And then we actually have this uh, really cool video that uh, that we did recently called best in class ion selective electrode sensors. Um, that's on our website as well. So I would highly recommend checking that out. And with that, we ended about perfectly on time. So uh, we will bring back in uh, Shannon and we will see if there's any questions we can answer. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, we have a couple minutes here for questions. We did have some that came in. Um, let's start with the um, ISC versus analyzer for ammonium. Um, okay. So for the ISE sensor, we have a question from Allison. It says, do the measuring electrodes read any other parameters that may interfere? So we... The measuring electrodes are measuring ammonium and nitrate. The two like biggest interferers are potassium and chloride. So those are the two, the only two that we measure that will automatically compensate. The potassium compensates for your ammonium. The uh, nitrate uh, is compensated with your chloride. So really it's one electrode for each measuring electrode, one compensating for each measuring electrode. Okay. Um, on the matrix adjustment for the ISE, is there a reason that you should not perform a weekly matrix adjustment for, <clears throat> sorry here, um, for nitrate and ammonium? Our operators do a weekly compare, so we are already doing the lab work. I think that's a great idea. Usually the, uh, I mean, if you guys are doing weekly comparisons, you're way ahead of the game. Um, like I, I always say, it's better to um, verify your measurements more often, and then also stay ahead of your um, stay ahead of your maintenance rather than lagging behind. So, if you're doing it, uh, if you're checking measurements weekly and you see that it's like a little bit off, absolutely do those matrix adjustments. It'll make it a lot. It'll make a make that sensor stay right on point. So yeah, I, there's no down downside to it. Um, doing it weekly, I would say. If you're doing daily, then that's probably overkill. <laughs> but weekly is probably good. Okay. Um, let's see here. <clears throat> Does the ISE sensor need a monitor or a controller to show readings? Yes. So they are uh, used looking at this picture itself. Uh, this is actually our 2020 controller. Um, it needs a 2020, 282, or 284 controller. And basically what that is, is it is the brains of the system. So that control, uh, that sensor is uh, connected directly to this controller. And it's going to be where you can input your calibrations. It can be, a, it's going to be where you can actually see your measurement. Um, and it's a digital communication. So I know sometimes you can have like, uh, analog signals or analog sensors, these are digital sensors. So we're not going to be able to like connect it directly up to an analog receiver and manually and manually take that measurement in. Um, so yeah, so you'll need a YSI IQ sensor net controller for that. Okay. Um, looks like we have time for one or two more questions. What is your recommendation if I'm using an ammonium ISC in low in a low concentration, but it often fluctuates above one MGL and then also below one. Okay, so pretty much, you're asking if what if I'm measuring what if I'm measuring around that one milligram per liter area? Like sometimes it's below, sometimes it's higher. Um, yeah, so my recommendation is like if it's um, if it's spending a majority of the time near the like near the zero area, it's probably where you should be using a wet chemistry analyzer. If you're using, if you're spending a majority of the time near one milligram per liter and higher, then your ISC is going to work perfectly fine. It's just the fact if you're spending more time in the in the very very low, like very very low range, that's when you're going to start to see that sensor de desensitize a little bit. Um, whereas if you're your majority of the time it's sensitized with 
um, it's in contact with some ammonium, that's going to be perfectly fine for the sensor. So I guess if it's if you're spending more time below, then that's probably going to be a problem. Well, thanks, Ben. Um, it looks like we're at the end of the hour. We will follow up with any questions that we didn't get to today. Uh, thanks to all of you that attended. I hope you found this webinar to be helpful and that you learned something today. And um, have a great day. Keep an eye on your inbox for more information on CEUs and the resources that Ben talked about. Great. Thanks, guys.